Greetings across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, presenter, educator, home video label, etc., and this is our 56th episode in February. I can never say that month. <laughs> I can never say Worcestershire. In February uh, 2023, the chuckle you're hearing is my co-host and co-producer, Kerr Lockhart. Good to yeah. good to connect with you over, over well, uh, not over the orthicon tube, as, as Percy <laughs> Dovetons was linking Pinky the, the orthicon tube, uh, digitally connecting. Uh, uh, glad we're here and... I see you've already come up with a, a theme for today's episode, Back to Feature Films. After... Well, in the last episode, we talked about a lot of other uses of your music, including yeah. even television. Yeah. Uh, way into that far-flung uh, futuristic <laughs> thing. Yeah. Uh, but now we're going back to uh, the meat and potatoes of this podcast, which is silent film as a performance art and what yeah. makes it alive. And what makes it alive is a warm body. Yes, yeah, so a warm body at the piano or, or or organ or warm bodies plural if it's an ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll we'll talk on this episode about uh, the theme song you've been hearing at the beginning, as well as uh, recent performances I've done for uh, restoration of the unknown, starring Lon Chaney, as well as a screening of Wings at the Library of Congress. We'll cover a couple of different aspects of film scoring. We've talked a while about replacing the theme, and one of the (laughs) best reasons to do it is that, of course, many people may not know, this is not a piece of music by Ben Modell. No, it's not. It's it's a piece called Those Keystone Comedy Cops, written by the guy who wrote Poor Pauline, if you know that song. Poor Pauline, I pity poor Pauline. One night she's drifting out to sea, then they tie her to a tree. I wonder what the end will be. This suspense is awful. Bing, bang, biff, they throw her over cliff. They dynamite her in a submarine. In the lion's den she stands with fright. Lion goes to take a bite. It goes to film. Good night, poor Pauline. It may be one of the earliest examples of sheet music uh, composed, maybe not to deliberately promote it. I don't think Senate hired this person, but uh, the Keystone films were so darn popular that it elicited a popular song the way in a, uh, a year or so later, uh, there were so many popular songs written, those Charlie Chaplin feet, uh, the Chaplin glide and, and whatnot. Those Charlie Chaplin feet, those funny Chaplin feet, when he comes down the street, he makes the cops flop, they chase him round the town, and auto knocks him down. For Charlie, 20 times a day, they fill him, but they never kill him like... Sure, uh, catching on to popular trends, they did that a lot. They write a song about an Oldsmobile that yes, Oldsmobile exactly. didn't pay for. <laughs> right, ex- exactly. It was just su- such a popular thing, uh, a song was made out of it. And Poor Pauline, of course, is a song about the perils of Pauline, which really was popular in 1913 and 1914. I came into the copy of this sheet music many years ago. Ron Magliozzi at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, one of the many things he's uh, interested in is... Uh, the use of popular song and popular music 
used in the promotion of motion pictures, and he was working on a project acquiring and collecting a, a large number of songs composed and published during the silent film era. Not just things like Charmaine and Diane that were written by Erna Rappé for, I mean, deliberately as commercials for movies that were out or sort of playing off the popularity of a film like Seventh Heaven or uh, Lilac Time to sell sheet music, but just the phenomenon of going to the movies. And there was a CD that Ron was involved with producing that was uh, called Let's Go Into a Picture Show. But there are many, many recording cylinders and and, uh, shellac 78s of these popular songs. And so Ron gave me a stack of some of this music. And and one of the pieces I kind of liked was those Keystone Comedy Cops. And for reasons I no longer remember, and it may have just been because I needed a new theme song how many years ago, uh, for the podcast, I recorded that. So that's what you've been hearing all this time. It does sound uh, like a little bit of an elbows-out silent movie piano piece, and that's probably why I thought it was okay or close enough. But I think uh, what Kerr's allu- alluding to is the fact that he and I have been talking about something that's a little bit more appropriate and also composed by me, something that welcomes you into the world of this. And I, I have an idea for something. I just haven't had a chance to record it. It's it's a theme that I had stuck in my head could but can never get out of my hands for a show. And when I began doing live stream shows for the Cinema Arts Center, I didn't want to play the silent comedy watch party theme. And I managed to squeeze this waltz that I had in the back of my head out. And I've been using it for those shows every other month. And so I think it might be a good fit. And I and, think that it will... Uh more generally reflect the kind of silent film that we talk about. We don't actually talk a lot about slapstick. I, where was a while we had a, went on to a run of Keaton and Chaplin chat. Yeah. But yeah. Um, generally we're not talking about uh, the latest uh, Billy Bavan discovery or <laughs> Lloyd <laughs> Hamilton film. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, just, that's, it doesn't more, come yeah. up. Yeah, it's not really a scoring challenge anymore, not, I think. Not, not to the same degree. Um, there, It does have its challenges. I'm more involved with, with it, producing those films for home video than I am interested in talking about how it is to score them. But we, we can get back to that at some point. If I can squeeze out some time, I'll I'll lay down the track, and at some point this year, <laughs> hopefully before the fall, uh, we'll we'll get the new the new theme song uh, recorded, and y- you'll know it because it'll be different when when you start the podcast episode. <laughs> you'll, 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 it's not the wrong podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're yes. war- warning you in advance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Played for a highly anticipated restoration at the Museum of Modern Art, the fairly well-known late Lon Chaney film, The Unknown, Turner has run it quite a bit, and it's it's quite notorious because aspects of the story seem particularly ghastly to us, and uh, the age disparity between Lon Chaney and his leading lady, Joan Crawford. Who is almost unrecognizable yeah. without all the eye makeup that we know her for. And of course, the most remarkable thing about this film is that it was thought it was to be lost because it was in cans that were marked unknown. Yeah. 
and <laughs> people thought this was just a random film that couldn't be identified, but the unknown is the title of the film. Right, right. So the word l'inconnu in French is, you know, it was is how it was discovered in the French Cinematheque. There's an episode of the Nitrateville radio podcast that was posted in October of last year of 2022, in which Michael Gebert, the host, uh, uh, interviews Peter Bagroff, he's the head of Georgia Muse- Museums, and uh, Anthony Labate and Gordon Nelson were also worked there. The three of them worked on the restoration. And Peter, who formerly was at Gus Filmelfond in Russia, uh, which is where the extra 10 to 12 minutes of footage turned up, he talks about how the extra footage uh, was found. and But he also talks about the story about uh, the unknown and the can labeling. And he explains how this may very well be apocryphal and just a better story than what actually happened. <laughs> but it, it, it is, it, you know, you print the legend, as they say. But yep. this is a film where we've seen a version that turned up in the French, at the French Cinematheque a long time ago. And it's been... Uh, it's been on home video. The Alloy Orchestra has a s- score for it that they do, and it, the film gets shown a lot at Halloween time. And the film is just, it, it's even for Todd Browning, it's really just really macabre. Uh, and the extra footage that turned up, it's one of these stories that happens where, uh, like uh, this the story with the, the extra footage from the pre-code film Babyface and uh, the the way that a new version of The Blacksmith with Buster Keaton turned up. It's a film that people had, and oh, the cans in our archive, oh yes, that's uh, we have a print of that. And then uh, it turns out that the print that goes film of fun is not the, was not the print. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was not a copy of the French material. It was yet another version um, that had made its way to it had check titles and then wound up in in and Gus Filmofund, which had more footage. There's an opening scene that uh, nobody has seen before. Uh, there's a lot of extra shots that were put back in. So, in the way that Metropolis, uh, in its last uh, most recent uh, restoration, suddenly has a lot more emotional weight and doesn't seem quite as sterile and mechanical. Uh, the same is the case for the unknown. The, there are more reaction shots, or the sh- reaction shots are longer. Um, there's more business with uh, whoever the leg double is with uh, for for Lon Chaney. You know, Chaney will be sitting in a chair and he's got a huge cummerbund, you know, covering the guy uh, who's doubling uh, for him. So lighting cigarettes, uh, scratching his chin, and stuff like that. And so this is uh, one of the reasons the film is a little bit longer. He's playing he's playing an armless character who is yes. very dexterous with his feet, and it's yes. affected by using a second actor. Yeah, which which you really, unless you're really trying to look for it, it's really it's very well done. It's just it's it is a very good effect. The film is, you know, the the trick for me, and and this is one of these things where there's my impression watching the film because I did get a chance to preview a screener and then there's a reaction I'll have while watching it myself and then I also have to imagine that it may have a different reaction in a theater with an with an audience there is just something about uh, the element of the show itself that a film takes on a different emotional uh, status uh, I've 
I've talked about this on another episode from a couple of years ago when I played for, oh, it's either White Changer Husband or White Changer Wife or the one with Gloria Swanson. DeMille. I mean, they made a few of these. But there's one that I, I remember watching because I was going to accompany it at the Kansas Island Film Festival. I remember watching it at home and thinking, eh. <laughs> But I also remember thinking, this will probably just really just take off in the theater, which it completely did. And I could smell it, you know, three minutes in. Uh, just an audience's enthusiasm and just being, oh boy, Gloria Swanson. And uh, this film just came came to life. And so in watching The Unknown ahead of time, and I know the film and I could have gone in and played it cold, but I wanted to see what, what the new stuff was. And so, yes, there were, there were bits that where... Uh, things are a little bit more emotionally grounded. What is your job to do? You don't have to tell people that this character is warped and twisted. You don't have to tell them that Joan Crawford had better watch out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't. You know that you don't yeah. have to to underline those things that the direction well, and the acting is already doing. So what's well that, your job? Well, the the <laughs> trick, at least for me anyway, and I don't know if I, it's really necessary, but I wanted to be careful about it is that so much of the plot is just really blatant. You know, here is a woman. Uh, she's in a circus. Uh, the guy who loves her is a, a guy who's passing himself as as someone who has no arms. He is in love with her, but she is in love with the strong man, except that she has this weird phobia about men's arms. So, so she's in love with Norman Carey, and he is really in love with her. And he, you know, he he puts his arm around her, and she freaks out. And there are titles to him and to Cheney about men's arms, men's arms, and it's just so over the top in some ways. And and this is clearly the the, the main plot of the movie. So what's he going to do? And you, you, what are the odds that the guy? <laughs> anyway, it's. My my concern we're, is we're that we're tiptoeing around a reveal, <laughs> right? And I'm not going to give it away. Yeah, uh, but you know, I remember Lee Irwin telling me about playing for a show of The Last Command with Emil Yannings and Evelyn Brent, and William Powell, of course, is also in this picture, as is uh, Fritz Feld. Uh, you, although you don't really recognize him, and he doesn't do. <laughs> not very effective in, movie. in spy silent if, if movies it's, if it's the same Fritz Feld anyway but um, <laughs> but Lee said that there was this show and Evelyn Brent's character and Emily Yanning's character kind of fall for one another it simmers slowly and then kind of happens where there's this there is this uh, declaration of love at, at one point in the film and there is a big age difference between Evel Yannings, who's an older gentleman with a white hair and a beard, and he's a Russian general, and she's this young uh, Russian revolutionary. And, you know, when they embrace and have this romantic moment, uh, Lee said there, people were, were giggling. And so what he, t- you know, his point in telling me about this was to find a way musically to help this the moment land better um, by... Uh, I think maybe holding back instead of leaning into a big romantic swell because uh, that might make it seem sillier is to pull back. So this is uh, something I try to do and it's something I went into the show knowing I have this technique should I need it, but I will, but I will also listen to the audience. And 
there are a couple of moments where there's inadvertent laughter. There's, there's nothing you can do about it, whether it's a title card or a moment where Cheney is sitting there scratching his chin with his foot, pondering something, um, and it looks a little silly. But luckily, the audience was absolutely on the ride with it. So that, that certainly helped. But there were still a few places where I really held back and either uh, held single notes or slowed down and tried to remind myself, Ben, you're not being paid by the note. Because the brilliance of, of Lon Chaney is that he, while he does have this penchant for playing tortured souls, often who are have some physical challenge, um, his chops as an actor are amazing. And it's something you can see in his earlier films that I've released uh, on the DVD and Blu-ray sets that John Marsalis has produced and scored, where it's almost like Chaney is in another, not, not in another movie, but... Uh, it's like when you see James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause against all the other actors mm-hmm. who are, you know, studio system actors uh, and contract player actors. And G- James Dean, and the same thing with Brando, you know, against some of these other people that they're from another universe or almost the way Valentino uh, in Four Horsemen just seems like he's like 30 years of acting skill ahead of where everybody else is. Yeah, so, they're really, yeah, they're in another idiom. I think of uh, early Louis Armstrong, I find hard to listen to mm-hmm. uh, because he's swinging like crazy and the rhythm section has not learned how to play like Louis Armstrong yet. Right, they haven't caught up. Yeah. Right, he's somewhere. He's already somewhere else. So so Cheney's performance is so, is so compelling and dynamic and I think that it, in the flow of the show itself and the collective fandom and, uh, uh, and connection that the audience has with it, it, it definitely goes over. And, and it's a film that it, that people just love this film as weird and bizarre as it can come off on the surface. And perhaps watching it in your lap, um, it doesn't land the same way. But I did make sure I tried to hold back as much as I could in some places. And of course, toward the end, you know, the thing with the, 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 the strong man's stunt with the two horses, which I'm not going to tell you what happens. But there are but, horses on a treadmill, and it's Yeah, and he's holding them. And, and it's, <laughs> you know, I remember thinking that Ken Winokur from the, the Alloy Orchestra said to me, was when they look for the, a film to score, they always try to find a movie where there's one moment where they can just wail <laughs> on, on that rack of junk that they have. And I thought, well, yeah, clearly... You know, real six or whatever it is uh, of the, the unknown is exactly where that is. Um, <laughs> but so, I mean, without the picture to play it against, it's hard to to really tell. But um, uh, what we'll listen to now is a few minutes of my live performed score for the unknown uh, during a segment where I may have been holding holding back a little bit musically in a moment where one might lean in to a romantic moment, so that instead of leaning in. By holding back a little bit, it draws the audience's attention up into the performance, up into the world of the film. Um, I've recorded this with my my Zoom H2N using its mid-side setting so that there's a microphone pointing straight and then two pointing to the left and right. And it's it's close mic'd right, right behind the music rack. Just for you audiophiles <laughs> in your hi-fi unit want to know how I recorded it. Here's a few minutes from my live performance for 
The Unknown, starring Lon Chaney, live in performance January 29th at the Museum of Modern Art, Titus II Auditorium. in performance at the Museum of Modern Arts Titus II Theater on what I believe is a Steinway S uh, small grand piano yours truly accompanying The Unknown starring Lon Chaney and directed by Todd Browning The topic of fighting unwanted laughter that's something you we could really unpack I saw a musical a couple of decades ago, written a very, very serious musical written by a person who writes very serious musicals and is famous for them, which had absolutely egregious laugh, which I thought could easily have been removed because what they were doing, they were leaving a pause. They were putting a, there was a, a space in there and that space was suggesting, well, well here's where the laugh goes. Said, right. Know, it, all you have to do is keep going. Step on, step yeah. on the laugh before it happens. It. Yeah. Now, you mentioned you have a way to kill. There's a notorious unwanted laugh in Nosferatu. Yeah. Well, there's a couple. But besides, you mean, this is besides your wife has a lovely throat. Besides that one? <laughs> yeah. Nothing Nothing you can do about no, that. It just, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's almost as funny as the 1931 Dracula where he says, I don't drink wine, wine. you know. <laughs> yeah. The, the moment when, when Count Orlock is carrying his own coffin through the streets. And he, That's the he, one. He kind of looks like a young Jim Carrey you know, with those, you know, the tight jeans and the spindly legs. And he, he also just, looks like Steve Martin is the jerk carrying the dog around. Right. It's just <laughs> It just looks weird. And I don't know if Morneau was thinking, Oh, uh, this is going to get the laugh. Uh, I don't know, but uh, it it often does. And so, I've tried a bunch of things at a bunch of shows, and what I have found to be the most effective so far for me is to play something extremely heavy-handed. Uh, where what I'm, tr- you know, maybe it's a twelve-eight figure. Yep, 
with uh, like a just a, a lot of force, and if I'm playing the organ, brass, and just where the, my the idea is uh, to underscore what this moment is in the story dramatically, mm-hmm. instead of because what you're looking at is you know Squidward carrying an iron ironing board <laughs> through town in broad <laughs> yeah. daylight, daylight. But w- what th- this moment is is like the worst thing pestilence personified has arrived in town that's what i was trying that's what i'm trying and by having something that both you know tells you that that's what this this moment in the story in the arc of the story is as well as making something loud enough that you're going to feel weird laughing because it's too loud so you're um, playing you're playing a danger Terry. yes yeah, danger Will yeah. robinson yeah, exactly, exactly, and and it it mostly works, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and I, I do want to mention, you know, in in sharing uh, recording clips and some of these uh, techniques and tips that I'm doing, I am letting you know this is what I do. I think most of the time it kind of works. It isn't the shining ex- example of whatever. I'm, these are things that I'm trying, and it's always evolving. But so far, um, that seems to help. That shot of Mr. Shrek, Herr, Herr Shrek and his coffin. <laughs> it also sounds like it uh, might, if you were looking at it from the point of view of uh, Orlock's state of mind, he seemed rather frenzied uh, well, at sure. that time. And, you know, he's looking for somewhere to put his put his box. Yeah, because <laughs> some I did a show several years ago where somebody who was like a vampire expert and had written a sequel to Dracula working with Bram Stoker's grand nephew or something like that talked about the original story and vampire lore and in the original text you know you, he could go out vamp, uh, you know uh, Dracula could go out in limited amounts of light daylight but we only all we know from every Dracula movie that's ever been made which is tons of them that you know oh my gosh a full daylight uh, will just make him turn into vapor which is what happens at the end of Nosferatu, but there's like a twilight or something. He can get away with it for about half an hour. So it, it just looks so darn re- ridiculous. So th- there are ways of, of helping the film land better in moments where uh, something that may have been horrifying or terribly moving in 1923 or six or whatever um, just doesn't do so today. So, Fantagraphics has announced a July pub date for... July 2023. (laughs) Yes, for Ernie and Kovacs Land, which is uh, co-authored by Ben and your... uh, It's it's me and Josh Mills, who's Edie Adams' son and who controls the estate, and a guy named Pat Thomas. And the three of us are listed as co-editors, and the book contains... Uh, many manuscripts, things Ernie wrote that never got published, things Ernie wrote that got published posthumously in gentlemen's magazines, including some excerpts from a book called Please Excuse a Pencil, a couple of pages of the script Ernie wrote for the Eugene movie he was hoping to make, as well as uh, rare images and documents that because that, Edie saved absolutely everything. So uh, a ton of stuff had gotten scanned thrown at a, a, a graphics person at Fantagraphics, uh, and it was all kind of boiled down. So I, I wrote uh, the uh, annotations for all of the images 
which is more than just a simple attribution of, oh, this magazine, this page number, this year, but uh, just for context. And so there's like several pages at the back of the book explaining what you're looking at so that you know what you're lo- what you're looking at. So this is something that we've been, it was announced in 2020, you know, when we were doing the, the uh, Josh and I were doing the events to commemorate Ernie's uh, centennial in, in 2019. We had postcards we were handing out that said this book was going to be out in 2020. Well, it's actually coming out now. And I, 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 I got word that it's at the printers and it, it, it'll, it'll be out in July. So we've talked about Kovacs's use of music uh, on episodes of this podcast uh, last year as a way to plug it when we thought it was going to be out <laughs> late last year. But now that I know it, it's pretty much definitely happening, we'll, we'll come back because there's a lot to talk about as far as Ernie's uh, use of music, his unusual choices in music. Well, it's interesting. We talked about how he seemed to um, have acquired an interest and a knowledge of uh, classical music, possibly through Edie. Oh, mainly through Edie Adams, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, comedians always use uh, high culture to indicate status and gentility and uh, the polite world that you're going to uh, comment on or disrupt. Um, and uh, we're talking about this is in this case, we're focusing on a commercial he made. Yeah. And he made the most elaborate Dutch Masters commercials. Some of them, I think, for single use, weren't they? It would, be, it would just be in the special and never he, be seen again. Well, the, the, he actually got to make the commercials for his crazy bizarro panel quiz show called take a good look Mm -hmm. which was on the air from the fall of 59 until very beginning of of 61 it was canceled in the middle of the second season but this is the era when the sponsor bought the airtime and then as long as the product sold they were happy so take a good look was not a ratings winner nor were the abc specials that followed it ernie was stuck in the bargain basement slot of 10.30 on Thursday nights following the Untouchables. And Ernie never smoked Dutch Master cigars. They were cheap cigars. But they were the sponsors. And like many things that Ernie was involved with, the answer was, I'll do it, but you have to let me do it my way. And wanted to make the commercials. And these are full, I want to say they're 90-second spots. Mm -hmm. They are slow and steady, like a lot of comedy routines you see in not only Kovacs, but in, in Blake Edwards' films. They just take their time. The unusual choice for Ernie was to have the commercials be completely wordless, except for the tagline, step up, you know, at the end, and that all of the commercials were scored by a piece of music, which at the time was a, was uh, attributed to Haydn, a string quartet, which uh, about, I think in 1965, it was discovered that this bunch of quartets was actually composed by uh, of someone named Roman Hofstetter. Uh, not not the Hofstetter that Leonard Hofstetter is named after on Big Bang Theory. That's Robert Hofstetter, who won a Nobel Prize in physics. But Roman Hofstetter is, a, is, a, is, a, is I think, he was not, not a scientist either or a well-known composer. But It's a Benedictine uh, monk. That's the word. That's the word I was trying to pull out. I was, <laughs> he was, the word Byzantine came up. I he, knew that was wrong. He was a few, a few decades younger than Haydn, but uh, yeah. nothing he wrote would have been impossible for Haydn to write. 
Yeah, right. It, it's, it does it does sound so, very similar, but it, it's it's a it's a very slow and steady piece of music, uh, and then the commercials themselves are very very simple. Uh, a slow slow like with Kovacs, there's a long long setup with a punchline, and the punchline is always a, a Dutch master cigar being discovered somewhere. Uh, uh, Joe Michaelis and and Kovacs are are cowboys, and they have a shootout. Michaelis appears to be unharmed takes a puff of the cigar and smoke pours out of holes throughout his body. Um, <laughs> these were done for take a good look, which is a panel show that, that Ernie did, which dis- defies description. Um, I'll, I'll do my best. And there's the, 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 there are moments in the first several episodes where Ernie <laughs> will tell the audience, I've been told to explain the show and I'm not going to, um, <laughs> You know, he holds this one where he holds up a sign that in big letters, it's, someone wrote, explain show. But basically, the, it, it's a panel show. Uh, it's usually Edie Adams, Cesar Romero, and, and Hans Conried. And uh, there's a secret guest who has not, who is not recognizable, who has done something recently in the news that's been written up in Life or Look. And in order to guess them, who these people are and what they did, Ernie has pre-taped video clues that are little bl- uh, blackout gags sometimes that give you absolutely no idea about who the person is. And often they would come back from the video clue and they would cut to the panel and they would just look like they had have, they have, they have no idea what they just were just shown. And once you know the answer, it makes sense. There's a clue where somebody is a rodeo champion. And the, all the clue is is a shot of uh, somebody rowing in a rowboat a close-up of a picture of Doris Day, and then a close-up of Jolene Brand going, oh, and unless you find out later, oh, it's a Rodeo, it makes no sense. But anyway, <laughs> these commercials were made by Ernie working with the director Barry Shear, who was his collaborative creator for a number of years. And, I mean, they ran them during the episodes that take a good look. You hear the audience laughter. And then so uh, these were then repurposed for the ABC specials that, that Ernie made in 1961, shown without, of course, the audience laughter. And there's one called Haydn that won a Clio the first year the Clios were given out. And the Clio was the Oscar for commercials. And Ernie's just, uh, when he talks about it on, on the episode of uh, Take a Good Look, one of the ones where this one was aired, he just seems so proud of having come up with this commercial that won an award. We should probably, let's let's play a little bit of, of the piece. It may be familiar to people. Cigar. We thank you once again, most sincerely, and 
So that's the piece by by Hofstetter slash Haydn that that Ernie chose, and it, it's an unusual choice to do this lo- long, slow and steady piece of music as a commercial for cigars. But Consolidated Cigar was happy because they sold cigars, so they kept Ernie on the air as long as it didn't even matter that the ratings were terrible because uh, you know you, you watch the Untouchables and then Ernie Kovacs and his surreal video art comes on and okay, time for bed. Um, <laughs> Um, unless you were, pardon my name dropping this, but you know I, I met Alice Cooper at, at uh, a taping of the uh, the old Leonard Lopez show on the uh, NPR affiliate here in New York City. Uh, he had, was plugging something, and I was coming on next to talk about the new, the first Ernie Kovacs TV show uh, DVD set that we put together. And, and once he heard I was involved with Kovacs, his eyes lit up. He said, "Oh my God! Every Thursday in our house, everything stopped." And we all gathered around the TV to watch Ernie Kovacs. But so, so you know, it's an unusual choice of music. And in this particular commercial uh, called Haydn, uh, the string quartet that is shown, they're not just four gentlemen with instruments who are sawing away. They're, if you watch them, they are musicians and they are playing something awfully close to the recording, which I think is fascinating, meaning that they must have had playback on set so that when we pan from Ernie out in the audience... All the way slowly over to the right to find this, this the string quartet. All four of them puffing on Dutch Master cigars. They are in sync with the recording, and it, it, that kind of attention to detail is, is 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 fascinating. Yet you were not able to include that musical highlight. Yes, in your Ernie Kovacs uh, CD compilation. Yeah, there, there's a CD uh, that came out uh, in 2007. Uh, that actually, it was worked on and produced by Erwin Chusett called the Ernie Kovacs Record Collection. And it was released on Vares Saraband, and it's out of print and goes for a lot of money on eBay and Amazon unless you have the files and you just share it with your friends. But they tried, he, you know, he worked with Edie, who was still around at the time, and tried to find as many pieces of classical music or pop music or this weird stuff that Ernie was interested in, clear it and include it. And for the life of us, he and you know Erwin Schusett and Edie and Josh and I, we could not figure out what recording Ernie used. Uh, we were able to figure out the Lieutenant KJ Suite, and I think that was one that I helped identify and use for the story of a drop of water and several other things. But we've talked about this when in our episode on City Lights, where there's a way instruments were played at a certain time that changed over years, and in the recording that you hear of this Hofstetter Quartet, there is a note that on paper, is it's called a grace note. It's written very small, uh, and it's meant uh, usually played very sh- short and quickly. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. They used to be played given a, a full weight. So uh, so when you, he, mo- you hear most recordings of this quartet, that's the way that figure is played. But the way it is in this recording that Ernie used sounds a little different. It had to have been a recording Ernie had in his collection in the 1950s that may have been from earlier than that and had been reissued on LP. Uh, we, we were just unable to track track it down. So 
hey, if, if you know what that was, l- let me know, and maybe, maybe we can add it if we ever want to reissue this track. All right, after that diversion, we're going right back to 1927 again. Yeah. We're going from the the unknown to the very (laughs) well-known, first Academy Award uh, Best Picture, Wings. Yeah, it's uh, it's a film I accompanied at the Library of Congress on January 20th of 2023 during, uh, it was part of a month-long series that they had programmed of films on the National Film Registry. Um, some weeks prior, I had accompanied the big parade at the Barrymore Film Center, another huge uh, World War One picture uh, with lots of big battles in it. And one of the things that occurred to me in playing for Wings uh, having played for that and the big parade the month before, and being very, f- you know, frustrated uh, with the way the score went, which is something that happens often uh, with with me. Uh, it goes fine for the audience, but I, it's there's just something about it that doesn't feel right. And I realized that the the battle, the way the battle scenes play out on screen, is is a different use of the cinematic language of silent film. In that, it's almost like a reversion to the way films were made in 1914-15 when you would have a title card that tells you what's going to happen. And then we cut to it happening. Mm -hmm. And it will feel redundant. And the difference is with these battle scenes in Big Parade and Wings and maybe others is that's exactly how these are handled. Uh, But I think it's because it's harder to tell what's going on. You know, they'll say... This happens, and then this guy cuts off the other guy to to save his friend. And then we see shots of planes flying through the air and people gritting their teeth. And a wide shot, and then a shot of the machine guns, and then more planes swirling. They're harder to decode because we've been given this information, and it's certainly helping us figure out what's going on. But after a few shots, at least I find it's harder to to see the... um, the, the almost the choreography and the or the 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 arc of the the dramatic moments there, and I find myself just playing battle music and watching for clues. There's two uh, things that, that strike me. First of all, I haven't seen Wings in a number of years, but my recollection would be that you don't get the left right orientation, the grounding that you when you have a ground battle, and you always know which force you're looking at. Well, yeah, I mean that, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, even in something like Big Parade with a, a lot of ground battles, it's still, it's still, um, there is more obvious left and right about that. But I found even with Big Parade, I would get lost in some of those scenes. Yeah. Whereas with a, something like Strike or October or uh, Battleship Potemkin, you know the the camera and the soldiers are going down from upper left to lower right, and the the people who are being attacked are going the opposite direction. In the 1926 film Mother by Pudovkin, the the soldiers in, on horseback are going this direction, and then the people who are protesting them are going the absolutely other direction. And the left-right is very, very clear. And, and, and this may just be me. I mean, uh, everybody else may have a much easier time of it. But as someone who's crafting underscore, um, it's a little harder for me to see where 
what goes with what. And I th- and I what I realize is that going forward, if I play for a film with battles like that, I've got to watch them ahead of time and jot down shot by shot what's happening so that I know on paper and have notes in front of me the the dramatic action of all of it uh, so I can better better underscore it. Right. Um, and the um, and, aerial battles, are you're going to lack expressive facial close-ups. Right. So, They're yeah. Usually so stuck you, behind goggles. So who's that? Right. Yeah. So there, there's medium shots of people in goggles, and then there's big wide shots. And and again, it, it, it might just be me. I mean, I, I always lose track of who's fighting who in, in battle scenes. And I have I have uh, cue sheets, story sheets that I've made for myself. Uh, I also find that in, uh, any kind of a, a upper class drama where the characters are the Viscount of this and the Count of this and the Duchy of that and the Duchess of this, I I literally have I have the <laughs> character names with circles and arrows and who loves who and who's married to who is who's cheating on who. You can't tell uh, the Viscount I, without a scorecard. Right. You yeah. You can't. <laughs> I can't anyway. And so that's that's a. A sort of a I don't know if dyslexia isn't the right word, but I just can't I just can't keep track of everybody. So th- that was a challenge that I had. I'm sure it went fine for the audience. So they weren't wrapped up in it the same way I was. So what we'll hear now is a few minutes of my score, not for for that. This is actually the, the tail tail end of the film, and uh, you'll hear from the music. It's a, the end of a big battle. It's, this is the moment where um, I don't want to give too much away, but. Uh, I'll just say that there are two planes flying. One of them shoots the other one, and it crashes. Um, and then it gets very somber. And I'm only including this because it, it shows you the range of the uh, amount of power you can get out of a theater pipe organ and also the uh, level of subtlety that you can also get, especially if, if you have to shift quickly from uh, an aerial battle to a, a somber and sad moment. <laughs> So this is a I'm recording the same microphone I mentioned the same digital recorder I mentioned before, but is at the back of the theater. I'm playing the Walker Digital Wurlitzer at the Library of Congress Packard Campus Theater in Culpeper, Virginia, for Wings.
seen between Richard Arlen and Charles Buddy Rogers toward the end of Wings, released in 1927 and directed by William Wellman. And that way we've got both piano and theater organ. Yeah. Uh, on on the on the episode I meant today, to, I meant to ask. Well, I'm curious how it was to play the Barrymore, since it's bringing new. It's a it's a very nice facility, and if you live in New Jersey and own a, an automobile, it's easier to get to than it is if you live in the city. I don't know how people who lived in Manhattan went over to Fort Lee to shoot <laughs> their movies in the teens and come and came back. But it's a but if the, you're they went on the ferry is what the ferry which doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> so so it's a, it's the dollar van going across the GWB or or something like that, but it is a beautiful facility. The there's a wonderful gallery exhibit uh, of of the Barrymore family. There is uh, the theater itself is really beautiful. Uh, it has an orchestra pit so that if they want to show something with an orchestra, it can be. There is an electronic Allen. Uh, theater organ in it. The projection there is they can do 16, 35, 70, and uh, digital, I think, all, all the way up to 4K. And uh, so what was shown, the screening of uh, Big Parade was a, a DCP, I believe, from George Eastman Museum, who, who's done the restoration on it. And it looked amazing. If, you, if you're in northern New Jersey and, or, and can get to Fort Lee, Absolutely, go uh, go to their website and see. They've got some great stuff uh, set up. Uh, uh, Nelson Page is, uh, uh, among other things, there is uh, programming the films, and they've got a lot of great stuff uh, coming up. And it's really an optimal place to watch to watch motion pictures. Nelson is terrific, and also uh, a lot of the fact of the existence of the theater uh, is due to a man named Tom Myers. Yes, Tom Myers, absolutely. It was a big initiative of his. As well, and a big part of there's a big push in the, to bring film production back uh, to New Jersey. Uh, I remember at the groundbreaking ceremony for the Barrymore Center that I went to, it was mentioned that the previous governor would would not give uh, production companies tax incentives to film there or set up production offices. That has changed, so you know you don't have to set up shop in Astoria. <laughs> Or the Bronx, uh, but they're really trying to because Fort Lee was such a huge production hub, and it certainly could be done again. So, uh, and, and again, be, this is something that uh, having known Nelson for a long time, you know, and he, you know, he used to own a number of theaters, uh, not anymore. But if you went to a theater that Nelson ran or owned, there was a theater organ in it, and uh, it was important to to him that people hear that sound, which I think is correct uh people should hear the theater organ and so there is an instrument uh there is i mean they have a piano as well but there there is a is a, a, a electronic theater organ there so definitely check out the barrymore film center uh for for anything they may have coming up uh on screen there i just want to say nelson would would book organ music when the film was not silent, it was just a regular theatrical film. I'm going to go oh, yeah. see the latest Coen Brothers film, and if I go a half an hour early, um, there will be a live organ. Yeah, side, there'll be organ concert. Up. Yeah, and there, yeah, uh, and that that's done in a number of other theaters. I know the uh, Union County Performing Arts Center, formerly the Rawway Theater, uh, has a Wurlitzer in it, and they will occasionally have someone. Uh, sometimes it's my friend Eric Foner uh, or somebody else will come and play 
mu- walk-in music. And uh, they used to do that at the Lowe's Jersey Theater as well. So there, there are a number of theaters that will do that. They're showing Beetlejuice, but they'll have you know 20 minutes of theater organ music, which is great because it gets you used to, oh, this is something I should be hearing mm-hmm. at, 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 a, at a film, whether it's silent or or not. I mean, the instruments there, you know, use it. And it's great for people to know about that sound. I'm looking forward to seeing friends and fans in Topeka uh, for the Kansas Silent Film Festival. I've been invited back to to play for a few things there. Uh, It's a fun show. It's free. If you're in driving distance of Topeka, Kansas, uh, go to the website for the Kansas Silent Film Festival and take a look at their lineup. They are showing films that were released in 1923, 100 years ago. And what's nice about that is there are at least three things on the program that they've gotten from Undercrank Productions. Uh, They are showing uh, Bellboy 13 with Douglas McClain, which I think I might have recommended. Uh, They are going to show Miles of Smiles with Baby Peggy, a restoration by the Museum of Modern Art, but it's on my Baby Peggy DVD. And they are, uh, well, their their special guest this year is Laura Gabrielle, uh, who will be talking about her book about Marion Davies, Captain of Her Soul, and we'll be introducing Little Old New York, a 1923 Marion Davies picture, which I, I think Ed LaRusso kickstarted that one, and I released it and scored it. And uh, it's been on Turner Classic Movies. By the way, my microphone is sitting on her book right now. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I have to it's... lift my mic to get it closer. Right oh, now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Laura's book is excellent. It's, it's it's a great read. It's an easy read. It's, it's deeply well-researched. And it does a, 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 a great job of debunking the baloney myths we've all, through conflation over the years, come to believe are the, are the truths about Marion Davies and are completely not. So if you're interested in finding out what an important performer, actor, uh, philanthropist, etc., that Marion Davies was, definitely check out Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies by Laura Gabrielle. Uh, I am recording scores this month for a Rin Tin Tin silent film, uh, as well as uh, the second of the two Tom Mix films that uh, we've restored. Uh, We're just getting uh, the final restoration files in from Katie Pratt, who's done an amazing job cleaning these Tom Mix films up, and they'll be out sometime in the spring. And the two Tom Mix films on the DVD will be on TCM at some point later in the year. And I, I will be popping up at, at a variety of different venues, including the Silent Clowns film series, uh, where we are performing our shows every other month at the Library for the Performing Arts, uh, at Lincoln Center, and at the Cobble Hill Cinemas in Brooklyn Oh, uh, all, on alternating months. Uh, uh, we are not back to every month at the library, although we will be in the fall. And to make up the gap, um, we've worked out something uh, where we've rented the the Gobble Hill Cinema, and I have I have thought for years that Brooklyn fans of silent film and classic film do not should not have to schlep into Manhattan to see something, and uh, silent film certainly should be done more often. There was a series run at the Brooklyn Public Library by Ken Gordon for a long time. I don't know if they've restarted it or not, but uh, we're doing our part. And we'll we'll be showing a Keaton film in March and a Lloyd film in May uh, at the Cobble Hill Cinemas. And and this, this silent comedy watch party will marches on every single month with our 
third anniversary show coming up in March. But bottom line, uh, go to silentfilmmusic.com. Sign up for my email lists. As a friend of mine once said, uh, said to me uh, a week ago, I missed your I missed your reminder on Facebook. And I said, are you on my email list? She said, no. Okay, well, that's why you, Facebook clearly does not have any idea what you really want to go see or want to remember. Uh, so go get on my email list. Go to silentfilmmusic.com where you can find out where I'm playing, what I'm playing for, and get on my email list. And when you sign up, when you click on that confirmation link, you'll be taken to a hidden page on my website, and you'll get to watch a rare comedy short for my collection. Well, that's episode 56. I want to thank you, Kerr, for producing these these shows. You know, folks, uh, uh, Kerr came along a bunch of years ago and, and with an interest in helping out on the show. And I think that for those of you who enjoy the show, um, you owe a, a huge set of gratitude to Kerr's determination and scheduling and production. Uh, because as you, if you've listened to the, the, sh- the podcast for a long time, you know, uh, when it's just me, I get a couple episodes out a year. So <laughs> thanks for all all you do, Kerr. Um, this has been the Silent Film Music Podcast, the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniment to silent films. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film historian, accompanist, composer, educator, home video label, piano tuner, etc., etc. Joined, as always, by my co-host, co-producer, my friend Kerr Lockhart. It's Kerr, thanks so much. It's always fun. Yeah, and, and as Kerr says all the time, uh, make sure to uh, go to your podcast platform and, and give us a rating. It helps goose that algorithm to recommend the show to other people. Um, we will see you next time for episode 57. And hopefully, maybe, we'll have new music to open and close the show with. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, for, thanks so much for, for everything, and I'll see you at the silence. <laughs>